0: Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to encourage you to have diversity in thought, but not create division in your community, and where we want you to remember how to think instead of tell you what to think. My name's Matt Fisher. I'm the creative director here at Hill City, where we record this and every episode of the podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, as always, John Wagler, Wags, what's going on?
1: It is 72 degrees out and sunny, and it's almost November, and I love it.
0: The earth is oh melting, and you couldn't be happier. <laughs> I am very happy. Just wags out, <laughs> out in the front yard with like an aerosol can. Yeah,
1: just <laughs> loving global warming right now.
0: <laughs> um, cool. Well, uh, we are also here with a very special guest who is not here at Hill City. He is joining us from... Are you in London,
2: David? I'm technically in Oxford. Okay. London is an hour and 20 minutes away by car or an hour by train ah. or an hour and 20 minutes by bus. Nice. Hmm. So, oh. Yeah.
0: Typical Americans, we don't know. We're like, you might as well be in Afghanistan. I'm just like, where are you on the
2: other side of the ocean? But now you know that if you come to London, you can just jump on a bus or a train or get a car. I mean, it's really easy. Come to Oxford; it's a wonderful place. Oh man, cool. I would love. You're to You're our do first
1: it. international guest.
0: First international guest.
1: Yes, yes, uh,
0: that's right. Do I,
1: get, do I get something for this? We'll send second. you something. Yeah, we'll
0: send you. We'll send you some <laughs> cookies. They will not be good by the time they get there. <laughs> um, cool. We are joined by our guest. Uh, author of War of Loves fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian apologetics uh, david Bennett david how you doing
2: good i'm well i'm um just really I'm grateful to be on with you guys and have this conversation. It should be interesting yeah uh, but uh just one question sure yeah. oh, okay what, what defines Richmond as a place?
0: Ooh. other than
2: racism <laughs> all right <laughs> Is That too strong? you
0: don't lead with that uh, I, would, I, would, I would say the overcoming the continuous uh, process of overcoming racism that's
1: true that's true that's a better
2: food that's, that's actually better, that's a better line i like yeah. that okay, Yeah,
1: <laughs> We're, we are a total foodie town yes like food's amazing and i would also say we just got this interesting quirkiness about us. So
0: lots of like organic coffee shops, lots of breweries, uh, lots Uh. of art art. There's a, there's one of the top ranked art schools here. Um, and well, in
2: my in my former life, although there are still moments where this happens, I'm a bit of a post-punk dancer. Oh my oh. dude, <laughs> that sounds like my scene. You need yeah. to stop.
0: You need to stop right now, or me and you are going to have a totally different podcast.
1: <laughs> you're speaking Matt's language right now. Oh my dude. <laughs> oh
2: well, we we can bond over this later. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Richmond definitely has what you're talking about. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, yeah. So that that's I don't know. That's pretty much Richmond food. Yeah. Trying to get over racism uh and a lot of honestly a lot of music like this is so richmond yes. is like just close enough to new york and dc so that a lot of the underground stuff like punk and and post-punk and new wave and uh, and dark wave and all we could get into all that stuff sort of like trickulated here first so like we were the first southern town to get a lot of that stuff
2: oh that sounds amazing
0: you would have a very to... nice time if you ever visit me and you are gonna go hit <laughs> yes, the town let's
2: go i'm up for it we'll
0: go record shop <laughs> lots of record shops that's like a good way to describe richmond um, so yeah so thank you so much for being on um, for those of you who are just joining us we are continuing in our is this forever
1: this long forever long uh, <laughs>
0: series on um, the intersection of faith and sexuality um, <laughs> we have talked to literally I feel like we've talked to almost every author that we've read on the <laughs> every living author now David makes uh, yeah this is the hat trick <laughs> Um, on this topic and, um, yeah, we're going to kick it over to David. David, just kind of tell us for, for those of us who haven't read War of Loves or, or heard your interviews or read your work online, um, just tell us a little bit about your story, sort of the elevator pitch of your story and, and what brought you, um, now here to study at Oxford.
2: So... My story starts uh, growing up in an agnostic atheist home. I mean, do we ever know when we're truly an agnostic or an atheist? I don't know. If you can give me the answer to that question, I really appreciate it. Uh, (laughs) But uh, my parents did not like the idea of God, put it that way. And I was raised kind of with that. Um, But I had this constant craving for transcendence, for spirituality, for philosophical engagement. I just had this. Itch that I couldn't scratch, um, but I was growing up in a Church of England school that had a very conservative sexual ethic mm. uh, in Sydney, Australia, and that turned me right off Christianity. And when I was uh, fourteen years of age, I ended up coming out and had a boyfriend. Um, we were kissing in a park, and anyway, he handed me this cross, which is actually on the front of the book um, *War of Love*. So you see this tiny little cross hanging around. Dangling down from the hand, and uh, he puts this cross in my hand. And he is from a Russian Orthodox background, and he, you know, gave me this gift. And I said, like, why would you give me a symbol of our oppression as a gift? You know, like <laughs> I start going on this rant about Paul and women and like, you know, the Bible and how terrible it is, and like, yeah. You know, and he just kind of kisses me to shut me up. And as we're kissing, a man pulls up on a motorbike, takes a large stone from. A garden bre- bed and proceeds to kind of throw it against my back because um, mm. that was the first time I ever really experienced homophobia of a direct violent kind and I thought to myself well this cross in my hand is what caused that homophobia mm. and I'm gonna dedicate my life to destroying Christianity really or just Abrahamic faiths generally that are homophobic and so I went to university. Um, I became a kind of gay activist involved in the queer collective at university, like far left politics. Uh, You know, I (laughs) used to cover the whole campus with gay marriage march posters and find the Christian union posters and be like, I'm so sick of these Christians trying to indoctrinate me with this, you know, this idea of living eternally in the clouds with a first century Jewish carpenter, like what is wrong with them, Uh, (laughs) you know? And so there was just this sense of kind of justice as I do that. And, but deep down there was this kind of also bitterness towards Christians. My face would scrunch up, you know, I just hated Christians. Uh, And I'd never really met a spirit filled Christian before. Mm. That wasn't like in the remit. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) how i understood like spirituality new age wicca all of that i'd experienced and tried buddhism i was a reformed jew for a week (laughs) 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 and so i ended up at this christmas lunch table with my uncle which you can read about and basically we had this huge debate and afterwards he he was a born again christian and um you know my cultural enemy and he was in the car after the debate christmas lunch 2008 and he had a word from God that God would save me in three months' time. So three months later, I end up in a pub in the gay quarter of Sydney. A young filmmaker who was a spirit-filled Christian uh, offered me prayer, and somehow she managed to lay hands on me. <laughs> <laughs> you read about that on the book. <laughs> in the book, and uh, she prayed for me, the very powerful prayers. I encountered God for the first time in my life. And I felt something like oil being poured on the top of my head. And so it was just from that moment, I was like, oh my gosh, like God is real. And I had this kind of revelation of the love of God and my life was turned 180 degrees up to side down. And I went home that night afterwards and my mom was waiting up and I'd, I hated my mom because she'd become a Christian. She was going to a Pentecostal church. And so I thought she was part of a cult. There was this rift between us, and she knew about the prophetic word that my uncle had given three months before, and it was exactly three months after he gave that word. And uh, and uh, yeah, I had to eat my words with my mother, mm-hmm. and yeah, and uh, found out about the fact that my salvation had been predicted. Um, by mm-hmm. you know, came home and told her that I'd become a Christian, so it was amazing, it was totally 180 degree like Pauline style just seized by Christ kind of conversion experience. But after that, there were just so many questions and for three years I had absolutely no problem with gay marriage. I just thought, you know, that these bits of scripture were just cultural add ons. Uh, and I knew who Jesus was. I was born again. I had given my life to him. I'd repented, etc. And so three years later, the Holy Spirit really started working deeply within me. And I started realizing I actually can't be in a gay relationship and like, that's just not going to work with the Holy Spirit. So that happened in Strasbourg, France when I lived there. So that's kind of my story in a nutshell, very brushstroke. It's actually far more dramatic (laughs) when you read it, but uh, I, then started to have very deep theological questions which then led me to oxford um where i was trained as an evangelist apologist and also was able to do some two degrees in christian ethics and i'm looking at the question of same-sex desire And my thesis is actually called queering the queer mm. so yeah i feel like that encapsulates my story <laughs> Like, That's super paradox. No. You know? <laughs> it's a very
0: complex story, very yeah. succinctly put. And I know you've probably had to tell it several times, but we
2: <laughs> we yeah. appreciate it.
1: So with your studies right now, like what are what will your focus be around?
2: So I'm looking at how desire is re-adjudicated and how a perception of the good changes when we're converted mm. through the beauty of Christ. So there's an aesthetic reorientation. Where you start to look back at creation and start to see what it truly is meant to be. And we start to you you we start to enjoy creation properly.
3: Hmm.
2: So sin entered, sin has kind of somehow affected our capacity to know the good. Um, pretty basic concept in Genesis. <laughs> and <laughs> and then when we meet with Christ and we see this beauty in him through the cross and the resurrection, this kind of upside down beauty (laughs) of his incredible love. Suddenly we start to understand creation and our bodies and how creation is meant to be used in enjoyment of God. And so then this opens up a new horizon for moral and ethical perception. So for me, I'm looking at like, as a celibate gay Christian, there was this kind of whole process where my view of the good completely changed. Hmm. And suddenly the cross like turned my view of the good completely on its head in a particular area and many other areas of my life, not just my sexuality. So I'm trying to look at that, like what is going on within the human being (laughs) when the grace of Christ and the beauty of Christ starts to affect them. And I'm looking particularly at same-sex desire um, and how that can shift for for the Christian so yeah it's it's a very um, I'm looking particularly at Augustine and his view of beauty and like reorientation of desire so yeah that's my thesis mm-hmm. I'm looking within Anglican theology particularly because Anglican theology's just got incredible resources from the Reformation to patristics to like Catholic tradition. has just got it all in there. Yeah, yeah <laughs> So I, I, I want it to be spoilt for choice, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> cool. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm occupying my, it's occupying my days now. Like yeah. um, I hide in a lot of Oxford libraries. It's a pretty hard life. It <laughs> uh, <laughs> sounds magical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty magical, but you know, I think there's a special kind of relationship that I mean I got criticized for mentioning Oxford too many times in my book but there's just something about the place as a Christian when you're processing your faith it's unlike any other place I know like and it's that's the reason I mentioned it so much not because I'm kind of staring at my own navel <laughs> <You're>, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah you guys if you ever you're all you're welcome to come please come and I will show you we just might take you up on yeah, I mean, Be uh, careful. yeah seriously seriously come
1: um, when you're, you know, that's interesting. You talk about like going back to creation, you know, like the view of how things were supposed to be or whatever. Do you, are you going off of at all? One one of the things that I've uh, shared it with our community and you know in conversations with our staff um, before is this idea of sometimes I don't know that we understand as Christians the idea of a new creation. You know, when Paul mentions that yes. and like we we love the idea of, of heaven <laughs> over hell, or like, we love the idea of, oh, it's like, I can do some nice new things. But, you know, when we read it in the new Testament, it's overwhelming like this transformational new creation that I don't think we can fully understand, mm-hmm. you know, is that part of like how you're so looking at some of it?
2: I think that this is probably the most common, well, other than the doctrine of the Trinity, Uh, this is probably the most complex uh christian question is the doctrine of creation like what and actually christology as well that's pretty hard but (laughs) like this whole how does the new apocalyptic inbreaking of the kingdom both restore creation and exceed it Mm -hmm. and so when we're thinking about sexuality what we need to start to think is Well, we know that the kingdom doesn't want to delete creation because that would be to instill a kind of rupture within God's self to say that the Creator isn't the same as the Redeemer. The Creator created what male and female, marriage, the creation, all of it as very good in the beginning. And that very goodness that the Creator instills within His creation isn't going to be contradicted by the Redeemer. (laughs) The Redeemer is going to want to restore what was originally very good, right? But what we see in Jesus and in the New Testament is an exceeding of that creation, original creation, for a new creation where there is no male and female in the kind of sense of covenant belonging where marriage is suddenly not really that important anymore and procreation (laughs) You know, it doesn't happen in the new, you know, heavenly state of new creation that we're going to fully inherit when we're raised from the dead. Like, so suddenly, like, marriage isn't there. Maleness and femaleness is somehow kept. But God set up maleness and femaleness and this original creation to actually point to something even greater than what it is. So, when we come to the question of like homosexuality, suddenly we're stuck. Like, that's when it becomes really difficult. Because in homosexuality, you get the more conservative side, and it's just natural law arguments. Well, we just look at nature and we can see that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that it's a good, and that everyone enjoys that beyond religious affiliation. But that's not enough. Like, we can't know natural law, we can't know what is naturally good just easily like there's something that's happened to our capacity to know that hmm. so i'm not like a massive fan of the natural law argument for why homosexuality isn't wrong i uh, sorry is wrong um and uh, and then you get the other side which is this kind of like kingdom ethics if you like where it's all just the kingdom and it's love and it's trinitarian love and if two people love each other there's nothing wrong with it like that's all been done away with now like we're in this new economy of love um and the created order has nothing to do with telling us wh- what love is or how it should, you know, play out in human bodies. <laughs> hmm. And I think both of those options lack and are missing something. And so what we need to do is bring together created order with kingdom. And we know that our sexuality is not the point, that that, that it points to something greater and that when we are, exist in that reality with christ then our homosexuality or our heterosexuality or whatever kind of half disordered half very good reality you know, reality we live in, in our bodies suddenly that's not the point anymore and so if god asked me to be celibate that's fine because i've got this greater good that it's attached to but if all i have is my sexuality and there is no future kingdom that's breaking in now and there is no resurrection, then yeah, sexuality is all we've got. Hmm. And yes, to ask a gay person to be celibate seems completely unfair. Hmm. But if there is this new kingdom and there's this new reality that exceeds the created order, then it's not bad news for me as a gay man to be celibate. I'm actually practicing heaven on earth. I'm actually bringing the future now. (laughs) uh, Hmm. where there will be no marriage. And I, I'm creating space for that future kingdom, heavenly reality through friendship to break into the world. So I actually think celibacy is greater than marriage in that sense, in that it evidences heaven. Hmm. Whereas marriage is only a sign of heaven. It doesn't necessarily evidence it because friendship is eternal. Marriage is not. And that's, that's part of like, I think we have it, the wrong way in our culture. We think actually marriage is primary and friendship is secondary. (laughs) And actually we see in the life of Jesus that that's not the case, that we see that marriage is secondary and a good and created very good in the beginning. And Jesus doesn't deny that. And I don't deny that, but it's not a necessary good for human flourishing. Hmm. So this lie that we have that sex is intimacy and that I need to have sex it's just not true. Like that's it's, I think it's clear in the gospel that you don't need to have sex to be whole or flourish as a human being. So when I started to understand that in my own story, that's when celibacy suddenly became an option to me. Whereas before I thought it was repressive, oppressive denial of my humanity. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Where do you, um, so obviously, uh, this seems to hear you explain it seems very new to a lot of people or like maybe a new idea this idea of like the goodness of celibacy rather than the oppression of celibacy yeah. um but it's not a new idea right like so the catholic church uh or i mean you know the, the historical christian church will call it like required celibacy of its leadership and paul was obviously yes. real big on celibacy and jesus was not a partnered man you know um uh where do you think and and you've studied this a lot more than we have where do you think celibacy derailed for us
2: so this is such a great question thank you i i think that just like you can have bad marriage i mean have this terrible purity culture you know in the us that you guys are all walking through and like we have had all the headlines on that you know you can have really bad marriage (laughs) Really impure purity, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. really bad celibacy, and um, this is why I'm interested in this kind of idea of the beauty of Jesus driving our self denial. Mm. I think if anything other than a bona fide, real living faith relationship with Christ is driving our self denial, we're not carrying a cross. We're not actually doing it. We're we're just living in a moral system that is oppressive to us. Morality without the person of Christ, like the law without grace, like it just, it profits nothing. Like we're never going to live up to it. So for me, I think celibacy and marriage and all of these things became almost like moralistic laws. And we see this with Kant, you know, back in Western philosophy, he just said, well, who cares really about the supernatural stuff? Let's just get rid of that. It's all about Jesus is a good moral teacher. But what that does is it brings us back under the law again because there's no, for me, what unlocked true celibacy was worship was responding to the beauty of who Jesus was. Um, And I think a lot of celibacy in marriage comes out of the wrong place. And I think that is just as much a kind of sin, like it, it falls short of what God intends for us. And so I think the question for us as the church is how do we, how do we lead people into true celibacy and true marriage? Um, And, you know, one of the parts for me that has been really difficult, and you guys put this in the question sheet, like, well, what are the kind of theological grappling points for you where your, your view doesn't really hold or it's difficult? I see one of them is when you get to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, you know, and he's speaking to this very fleshly Corinthian church that has really got a lot of things wrong (laughs) like they suck basically (laughs) like if you want to find like you know unfortunately we probably all look a lot more like the Corinthian Christians than we want to admit (laughs) Um, and Paul's there and they're all lusting and burning in passion or whatever that might mean it's certainly not like chasteness or living for the Lord in an ordered way it's certainly like of the flesh. And so Paul is, gives this, you know, kind of lenient teaching of like, okay, well, if you're going to burn in passion or whatever, then just get married. Mm. But then what do you say to the gay person that's burning in passion? You know, you can't just say, well, just, all right, go get a gay partner and like, God will have mercy on that. You know, it'll work out in the future. Um, Or do you say, well, actually, this isn't, that option isn't there for you guys. Sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But God's going to give you even more grace because of that. And God's going to, you know, extend and bring even more glory through your life because that option isn't there. But what I think I find more important than that question is just how much 1 Corinthians 7 has become the standard of the heterosexual church.
3: Yeah.
2: And, like, people reading their Bibles like it's a moral manual for their lives (laughs) Mm -hmm. and not reading the context. I'm just there, like, we should not be wanting to burn in, like, passion. That is the worst foundation for a marriage I could ever think of. But Paul is simply saying, well, it's better that you do that. So it's not even really that much better. It's, like, a terrible option. I'm an all-or-nothing person. I'm, like, I want what is – I would prefer to go through some inner healing and get deal with my lust and then get married, you know? So I think we need to relativize and hold that advice from Paul in the context. I don't think that should really be a general word for all of us. Mm -hmm. I think Jesus calls us to, has a kind of even more radical ethic of like, if a part of you causes you to sin, cut it off. Like (laughs) he doesn't mess around. Mm -hmm. He doesn't just say, well, if you're burning in passion, get married. Mm -hmm. Paul is dealing in a pastoral context. So yeah, that, that for me would be a really difficult part of how you if you have a gay person who's struggling and wrestling with their desires they can't just get married to their boyfriend or girlfriend um or you know if they're trans (laughs) you know there's a whole other kind of question there around what partners look like and what is ethical and what is faithful to the scriptures the other just quick thing is also the existence of intersex people. So a lot of my progressive friends will say to me, well, David, you believe in this male and female binary. Um, and they say, I'm non-binary. It's like, well, that's then just constructing another binary with binary and non-binary. So like, at the end of the day, human beings will always think to some degree in a binary way, and we can't really get away from that. Yeah. Um, no matter how much we queer something... we're just going to construct new binaries because we're human. Um, And so maybe we need to honor the original kind of intent of God making us male and female in the beginning and that intersex and eunuchs and like, you know, our maleness and femaleness, if we have it, is not really reflecting that original state. Um, And that actually, if we make that original state, ultimate it becomes a law that condemns us because no man no woman no trans person no intersex person no gay person is ever going to live up to that original place we were in and god doesn't want to take us back there he wants to restore maleness and femaleness but then he wants to exceed it to something even greater Mm. so that's the i think that's the the bit i would want to insert is god doesn't want to delete the created order but he doesn't want the created order to become a law that we try to live up to in our own effort and strength. But we're waiting for a new body that will be perfectly compatible with the reality of the new creation. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's that, that tension that we live in, and that's why I call the book A War of Loves, because... <laughs> When you have this question of same sex desire, suddenly all of these complex theological questions, ethical questions, it all bombards you and it's all too much. I've said to Jesus many times, this is too much. Like, how do you like, I mean, I'm reasonably privileged. I've been given a world-class education and I don't know some days like, <laughs> what? like what's going on here. Like, but then Paul says it's a mystery and that helps. You know, when Paul talks about maleness and femaleness and marriage in the church and sexuality, it's like, it's a mystery, which doesn't mean it's not something you can't know, but it's so beyond you in some way, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it goes into a divine reality that we struggle to understand. Yeah. And for me as a disciple, I came to a point where I said, God, I need to let you be different to me. If everything I think about my sexuality or about my personhood or who I am is just how I want it to be, then you're not really God. Hmm. Like you're just who you're just a projection that I'm making up in my head. Like, I want to know what you think about this. And that's when the conversation between God and I really shifted and where space was opened up when for me to realize that actually I had a different vocation than, you know, the average heterosexual Christian. Mm. Um, and that there was a special glory that God wanted to reveal in gay people that's unique. Um, and so I think of Isaiah 56 where it talks about eunuchs who are people who didn't fit in this binary idea. And God says 600 years before Jesus comes and before there's even a new covenant where all eunuchs are suddenly adopted and all the Gentiles come in and every person, every human being is embraced by the Father and invited in through Jesus. Like before though any of that's happened, you see this apocalyptic in-breaking moment and God says to the eunuchs, do not let them say I'm a dried, tr- dried up tree Um but to the eunuchs who obey my commands and live according to my Sabbaths, I will give a name that's better than sons having sons and daughters. I will give a, an eternal name, um, a name that shall not be cut, cut off. And so here you see God honoring and giving this amazing name to the LGBTQI community and saying, like, you might not fit in that. <laughs> and I know, <laughs> but I actually have an eternal even greater name than fitting into that that chapter of Isaiah 56 for me has been massively transformative to see that Yahweh pre-incarnation pre-Jesus coming is the same God I see in Jesus Mm. (laughs) you know 600 years even when the law was being practiced and all these things that God was still saying I embrace the eunuch I embrace the person who doesn't fit in the binary I know that the fall has had its impacts and that people didn't choose this, yeah. you know? And for me, that has been absolutely vital. I think for me, the question of sexuality is a theodicy question, which means it's a question about suffering. It's like, why would you let me have these desires? Hmm. You created us this way and then you were allowing me to have desires completely opposite to what you want. And then you're going to like punish me for that what kind of sycophant God are you? Like, mm-hmm. um, And so I had to, through Jesus, understand that's not actually who God was or is or ever has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a long journey. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Well, you're also describing too why, and what we talked about even before we were recording was how difficult it can be to establish policies and different things as, as church leaders, because, you know, your story, which is incredible. Also, other people are kind of on a journey and process themselves, you know, and some of it's so complicated and people want to rush to, Hey, this is how exactly it should work. But the reality is, is, I mean, sometimes you just gotta like go along in the process a little bit too, you know, and appreciate the journey of folks.
2: I think you're totally right. I think I always say to people who come to me, this question, give God a year. Give God a year of your undevoted time and attention, actually. Before you rule on what you think about your own personal sexuality or gender identity and how it should be lived out or anything, let God speak into it above any other voice you might hear on Twitter, above (laughs) any other voice you might speak on Facebook, above any other academic you might read, whatever it might be that's informing you. If you want to follow Christ, he has to be your ultimate authority. But the problem is, it takes time to trust Christ. Hmm. This is not like some automatic process, and the churches just wanted to demand obedience without allowing people to actually have the law written on their hearts. And obedience—and this is a distinction I draw in my book—obedience by law is worthless, utter, utter poop. Hmm. Uh, who cares? I don't care about your obedience by law. I'm not interested. It smells worse than the licentiousness of the worst sinner. I'm just don't care. Like, <laughs> mm. like not interested. I'm interested in obedience by faith and obedience by faith takes a long time to, it's a fruit. You know, you can't just force a tree to, to bear fruit. It's going to take long process of self death and self resurrection before someone's going to be able to just obey in this area. Mm. And so I think part of what I, suppose I've started to come to see is that God is going to have incredible grace for all of us, but that grace is not a license to sin. And so there's this kind of wagering moment where you've been given grace and you've been given revelation and suddenly the old answer of gay marriage is fine and the Bible just this doesn't work anymore. And suddenly it's like, am I going to be an Abraham or am I going to be a lot? Hmm. And I felt like that was the question in my life. David, are you going to live in me fully? Are you going to give me your homosexuality? Are you Are going to give me everything? Or are you going to go back to the way you want to live um, and live like Lot? And I mean, the answer as a Christian always has to be Abraham.
1: Yeah. Matt and I have talked about uh, very frequently about how we get frustrated in the conversation because... I mean, what you're describing David, is not just for someone who's gay. Like it's someone who's no. straight, right? Like you're describing all the things that we should be saying and it's the same level and the same, um, desire and the same kind of, uh, expectation that Jesus has as a straight for a straight person. And Matt and I've even talked about how it's frustrating because, you know, a lot of times straight folks just think they get a, get out of jail free card, so to speak, you know, with this conversation with sexuality. Cause like, Oh, we can just get married and it's fine. You know, whatever. And, and we get frustrated because we've met with and talked with gay folks who are passionately trying to seek after Jesus and feel the struggle. And it's hard. And, and you have totally some straight folks over here being like, well, just stop having sex or just don't do this. And you're like, you don't even do that. Yeah. You know, like it's so frustrating, <laughs> like sometimes. And so, No, I appreciate Uh you sharing all of that because it's incredibly meaningful for all of us.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts about this idea of like, because again, we're in this position where we're leading, uh, you know, John's the pastor, you know, um, I'm on staff here at the church and through the podcast, we're sort of like, our conversations are public and, and part of... Not part of policy, but like ultimately we're like we were talking about before we recorded as church leaders, if you're out there listening, you know eventually we're faced with this idea of the theology merging into some sort of stance or Pastoral we're policy right, right, yeah, we're constantly being pressured into like stating a policy um but you know therein lies the issue of like listening to your story and um listening to. Uh, the story of other like celibate gay Christians and then listening to the story of, of some partnered and married gay Christians. Um, mm. It seems to be the, the telling of other people where they should be and what they should do is where the real problem. I mean, there's lots of problems, but like that, that for, <laughs> you know uh, for, for the church capital T capital C, that seems to be this huge issue that we're trying to figure out. Um I wanted to ask you a couple of questions first off would you this thought has occurred to me a couple of different times as we've gone through this conversation and it's this thing of like when I listen to your story what I hear is someone who um encounter you had a a encounter with God that um your academic and scientific brain could not reconcile is that fair yeah. Like you were a college yeah. guy. You were at fourteen you were orating or about oppression uh to your boyfriend. <laughs> which I can yeah. that was totally like I'm that you know, like I started reading Chomsky when I was like fifteen, not because I was smart, yeah, just because I too. Yeah, I just thought I was smart. Right? Like exactly, uh, yeah. Rage Against the Machine told me to read Noam Chomsky, so I read Noam <laughs> yeah. Chomsky. Yeah, but so so I uh I relate with that. Um but so you're 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 this reasoned, um uh, you know, I'm gonna assume scientific, academic, you know curious guy. Um, and you have this, this, uh, encounter with the, the, the woman praying over you. And now, you know, part of your journey has been like, how do I reconcile? How do I deal with that? Like, because I can't deny it. Right. Um, and ultimately, exactly, yeah. yeah, ultimately what you came to after much prayer and study was, um, your you know, this, this call to celibacy
3: mm. and
0: what a gift that is where i struggle is like or where i think we're struggling is like so if god gives it to you after you have given him everything and and his gift in return is celibacy it is a gift mm. but if if someone were to have if a ma- if if man were to have given it to you right so if a church or a policy or or a or a or an mm. administration a, a presidential administration had given it to you it would have been a curse that, and that's the thing is like when when you say you know, when you have yeah. affirming, you know, whatever, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> affirming, I'm just going to say affirming, when you have gay That's affirming fine. people um, <laughs> uh, who say like, yeah, but this is like a death sentence for gay people. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know what I'm trying to get at. It's kind of like both it, both sides are right in a way. Like if God, if you go to God and what God returns to you with is celibacy, it's a gift. If you go to the church leadership and what they orate to you is celibacy, it is, it feels like a like a condemnation does that
2: yeah well that's what i think i was trying to say about law Hmm. so like i think we are spirit people like uh what i do know is that the spirit will not write a law in your heart that a isn't the law (laughs) Mm -hmm. or b that doesn't sit in alignment with the originally good created order Mm And so gay marriage is not an option for the spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be an option for you in your humanness existentially as you try to wrestle with these things. But I think I came to a point where I knew that wasn't an option.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. And so then it opened up like, well, what am I going to do? This seems impossible. Like what the, and then the grace came to reveal to me what celibacy in God's mind and heart really was about. Mm-hmm. And I actually have gay friends, they've been called to a mixed orientation marriage. So one of my friends who's a professor, well, I shouldn't say professor, he is the principal of a theological college um, in Bristol, Sean Doherty. He was in an Oxford lecture one day talking about this very topic. And there was a lady across the way and suddenly out of nowhere, he just felt this intense attraction to her. And he is not bisexual, I can tell you. (laughs) Like, and they both had the same feeling for each other. She was heterosexual, he was gay. And then, you know, he kind of freaked him out and it took him a long time to process it. And eventually they ended up married. And I actually have a lot of friends like that. Nate Collins is an example, who's a common, book um, out with Zondervan on this question as well. Like there's, so it's not just celibacy. And I think what I struggle with to also I, I completely agree with, you know, queer theory and with the progressive perspective in terms of sex, heterosexuality being used as a kind of clobbering, you know, weapon against gay community and the teaching of scripture being used in a way to kind of damage gay people. And I think it has. And I think as a church we have to repent of that deeply. And have to realise none of us live according to that standard entirely even if we're married <laughs> um and that i think we need to break the idol of a romantic love and i think what happened was a church became idolatrous after world war ii didn't want to face the reality that nazi germany had come through a basically christian protestant nation mm. like mm. christianity sucked the evangelical protestant christianity Sucked. It failed. Mm. Mm. And so what did we cling to instead of repenting and turning to Jesus and saying, we have to give it all back to you. We turned to marriage and family hmm. as our idol. Like what the, you know, and we, we elevated it to such an ex- extent. And, you know, then we had this huge liberal backlash against that. And then it was just free sexuality And now we're living in the aftermath of basically idolatry that is on the church's hands. And then the gay community said, okay, so you're not going to give us that. Well, then we're going to take it off you and we're going to do it better than you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Instead of living this radical other Jesus way that breaks that idolatry open and refuses it. We, we as the church were the ones who did did this and i really think there is a problem in sexuality in the history of the church and so there's many ways in which i value the progressive critique of christianity um, on this question i just think the conclusion is wrong about gifting i don't think i wake woke up one day and just was like i'm gonna be celibate this is great mm-hmm. uh, or even that gifting works that way biblically i think it's come follow me deny yourself pick up your cross and follow me. And in that, God will just grace you, whatever it looks like, whether you're a celibate, whether you end up in mixed orientation marriage. But I do know that God is not going to grace something that is outside of his originally good created order. He may bless it in a sense of like, you know, when someone has insufficient revelation to understand what they're in, I think God will work within it and cover it for a time. But I think there's a time to reckon with God and to say, okay, I have to give my whole life to you. And that could be in 10 years, it could be in five years. Like God works and process in people's lives. And that's where I think statements are dangerous. Hmm. Uh, and I think we saw that with the Nashville statement. It was yeah. a horrific statement for me. It completely destroyed what would have been a really nice, very slow process for more, you know, what the term would be, historic ethic Christians, <laughs> to get their mind together and actually produce something decent that actually was about people and not just statements. And so I think it's okay to have some kind of like, you know, we agree with this, you know, here's the terms of kind of what we believe in. But then the problem with that is that it never seems to work. Even in the church, church history, Um, But, you know, we need creeds and we need some consensus and for people to know and for it to be clear. So I I, I think it's out. I think the question comes, what spirit is it coming out of? Like, is it coming out of love? Is it coming out of a deep, broken heart for the gay community and people who are other Or is it just, I want to get this out of my hands so that I can get on with my, like, happy upper-middle-class church Christian life, you know? Um, And I think that the church, that God is calling the church deeper with him, both progressive and conservative. Um, I suppose I just don't want to get in the way of that. Uh, But I do want to say this is what he did. Um, And it wasn't just an easy, like, I'm gifted to celibacy Uh, And, you know, there's days where I'm like, I'm never going to have grandkids for my mom. Like, like who is going to look after me when I'm 70? Like, you know, (laughs) I mean, there's deep moments of existential quandary and there aren't forms of church that have been developed in the world of church that's not Catholic or Orthodox that work for celibate people. Mm. Um, And so much attention is being taken away from creating those forms of church by just arguing about gay marriage. Mm So yeah. part of me almost doesn't want to argue about it. I just kind of want to live it out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't, don't really have the big answer for it, but all I know is to to do podcasts like this and be with the local church and be there with progressive people who disagree with me and love them. And, you know, yeah, I think there's an esse- a sense in which this probably will never resolve itself till. We get to the resurrection, yeah. um, and that's, you know. But I do encourage churches to try to have a clear view, and I think a lot of progressives want that. But yeah. I think what I worry about is that progressives are going to use that as a form of power later, to try to stamp out anything that's that disagrees. Do you think it's so how to oh, Yeah, go on. I was gonna say, yeah.
1: do, do you think it's possible a church could have a stance that is different than? affirming or non-affirming That's a very good question. Like an honest like honest to God like here's our stance. <laughs> Okay.
0: Our stance (laughs) is no stance. Well, you brought up a great point earlier where like non-binary just becomes a third binary, right? And then it's just a trinary. I don't, that's not a real word. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, that's like, do you, and I know, you know, you you were joking earlier before we started recording that you're in academia, not in in church policy for a reason. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh,
2: I might be later in my life. We don't know yet. Right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. if you get it figured
0: out, people will definitely be coming to ask you some questions.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like Matt and I have
1: said, Matt and I have said just kind of sidebarring here. I I love that our podcast, like everyone just ends up ending on our conversations. But like we have sidebarred for quite some time of like, I mean, there is some things that we all wrestle with and is it possible to have a stance that doesn't fit the narrative of the typical church stances right now that yeah does move towards hey like we do believe in scripture and we believe in creation and we believe in all these beautiful things and and the new creation of christ and and some of the things you've been talking about david and but also the beauty in someone's process and um and so so that someone could like if you like right now i feel like in the church world it's Okay, where do you stand on homosexuality? If if you say you're not down with same sex marriage, let's say, um, then you're like, all right, I don't want any part of that, you know, and um because I can't lead in your church and I can't do this and I can't do that. And then if you go the other side, then it's like there's obviously other issues with that, you know, like mm. theologically and even practically for that matter. Um, and then there's this what we felt is like this odd tension filled middle where we feel like um, we are and trying to figure out how to love well, be the- theologically sound and also allow people to um, serve and be a part of like their process and growing in their faith and everything else. But we have felt like it doesn't feel like it's good enough yeah, for we're, either side. Yeah, honestly,
0: we really, we, I, I literally had a um, trans, christian who teaches on this stuff who uh, tell me like ask like oh how did you guys figure that out and i was like i don't know we were, we haven't and they said um yeah every church that i've gone to that has claimed to like hold the middle it's just not true they just end up one way or the other like no one's been able to to hold both so i was like oh no <laughs>
1: <laughs> but like we well, feel because like for for us it kind of feels like no we're trying to have like give you guys our our place in this conversation but you just keep wanting us to like go to one side or the other and we're trying to be like no no no, like we we want to embrace the complexity we want to like mm. love all those things and we're feeling <laughs> we often feel like no one will let us do this
2: yeah. <laughs> so. so so i think i always whenever i okay this is my instinct as an ethicist okay or the theology, theologian that's doing ethics when I get to this point where I'm like Jesus or God or just don't know, like this is all too hard, I then always come back to the simple gospel, four gospels, I go in and look at Jesus again, and I watch him. How did he deal with divorce? How did he deal with financial idolatry? How did he deal with the afterlife? How did? He... And I try to find just a refreshing, simple way again. come to the question and when i look at jesus the question of divorce what i see is that he sides there's two schools of uh basically two schools of jewish jurisprudence on divorce one is called the himmel and one is called the shammai and he sides with the shammai like he's totally shammai like he's like no divorce is bad and because it was you know hardness of your hearts that moses wrote that and yeah, we could probably say the same about Paul and marriage. <laughs> 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 Just get married. I mean, I don't know. But the point is that he he agrees with the Shammai view. And yet the way that he is approaching it comes from a completely different angle to how the Shammai are even thinking about it. Hmm. And I feel like we need to create a safe space for sinners, which which we all are, <laughs> to work things out. And part of creating that safe space is realizing that same-sex desire and gender dysphoria are incredibly complex and difficult things to work through. And I think, you know, you, one of the questions you had for me was, what would you want heterosexual people <laughs> to take away? I think one of them is just like, please give us some space. Like, please realize that this is a difficult question, but that doesn't mean you have to compromise your shammai. You know, it doesn't mean you just say you don't <laughs> align with a particular school, but it does mean like you have to actually listen. Um, and you know, there's a lot of people who are speaking that aren't really speaking. They're just yelling in the gay community. Mm-hmm. But there are people who are actually speaking, and that's what I look for. Whether it's progressive or it's traditional, I'm looking for the voice that's speaking truth in the best way it possibly can within its circumstance. And I think God judges the heart of a person. And I have people who are progressive, and I see that their heart is leaning towards the Lord and wanting to go in that direction. And so I think we have to just deal with it dynamically person to person, but have a kind of Shammai thing. And I, I personally think, you know, you can't get away from the teaching of scripture. Like that's my Shammai, but the way that I'm going to live that out, is going to be radically different hmm. to, to the way it's been implemented in the past. And that will not satisfy my progressive friends <laughs> you know, they're gonna say well the shammai is wrong why would you ascribe to it um that,
1: that wouldn't satisfy a conservative friend either in some in some ways you know
2: yeah and i think that's the thing is jesus was like more progressive than the progressives and more conservative than the conservatives he was like radically pure radically holy in a personal sense and yet completely social justice and like risked his whole life and body and precarity for everyone <laughs> like getting stoned all the time and thrown off cliffs half the time you know like I mean so I just think we need to follow Jesus and we need to do it with our sexual ethics and that means getting in hot water sometimes and that means being treated terribly I've had progressive people say that my book will kill people um, I've had conservative people say that you know I'm a false teacher hmm. um, and that I'm me too completely off- yeah <laughs> Actually. And so, I think it's sure. like just learning to not change, like keep following Jesus in that. I I don't, and creating a safe space and reconfiguring the way that we understand homosexuality is so important that the way we've approached it in the past has been lackluster, terrible, not humane, and. I think the experiences of gay people um have helped us to actually create the safe space now now that we have this cultural proliferation of people thinking all sorts of things i actually think it's quite an exciting moment
3: Hmm.
2: for the church that wants to stick with the historical traditional view to really step up to the plate and provide an environment where people can journey and I think the only real like thing that you have to be committed to in that space is that you want to follow Jesus,
3: mm. and right, eventually just,
2: the the Holy Spirit is gonna do his work and reveal. But for me to get where I got to, it had to be Jesus number one, yes. or I wouldn't have gotten there.
1: We're just gonna play that on record for people, so we'll have them email you when they <laughs> no. I, mean, um, I don't know.
2: If- is 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 that helpful? I mean, tell me what you guys think. I would love to know, from your pastoral perspective.
1: I, I do think it's. I mean, it's certainly helpful. Oh yeah, it's super, it's not it, not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's super helpful because I think you're you're one of the first people we've talked with um, that appreciates the tension in the gray area and the ability to kind of talk with that. And I think even the way you talk about. Even the way you talk about celibacy and um, I should say sexuality in general is a refreshing way for someone who's straight or gay, and um, which I really appreciate too. And so, it for me it adds some layers into how to process some of this for our community and um, how to continue to wrestle with some of the gray areas for us and to. I mean in some ways not be afraid to say that you know to a more conservative person or a more progressive person and
0: right because I think earlier you I also heard you say it's a mis- you know part of sexuality it's part of this is the mystery of sexuality right that we're not really going to get a clear answer yeah until the resurrection and I think the the problem for both sides is that they seem to think they've got a clear answer and I I think maybe you know, messier. It, it's messier and more mysterious than that. Um,
1: like, I was so happy when you brought up the mystery part, because <laughs> I don't I said to Matt, what was it last week? Mm-hmm. I said, I feel like I'm in this bizarre no man's land right now where. I feel deep convictions over certain things theologically, see some holes in others, think about actual people, you know, that we have to pastor how do we love well? How do we follow Jesus well? How do we embrace my love of Scripture as w- as well? And and when you mentioned the mystery part today, I was like, maybe that's what it is. Mm. <laughs> maybe like that's what I've been feeling is is this uh-huh. mysterious element that makes me feel there's going to be some tension in this. Right. If we're trying to faithfully go about this.
2: And I think the other thing is, if you have true revelation, like I do think scripture is clear, obviously. <laughs> I do think there's a clarity. I do think there's a revelation that teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman for New Testament Christians. Acts 15, Gentiles should abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality to a Jew involved same-sex activity. Bam, it's really clear. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it's a transliteration of, mischiefs occur in the Septuagintal translation of the original Jewish text, which is arseno, you know, Yeah, like it's, it's clear Paul's create, translating the Jewish ethic to Gentiles on sexual grounds so it's a no-go, it's clear however, revelation should always lead you to mystery mm-hmm. true revelation will always bring you to a point where you're like, this is beyond me This is difficult. This is a mystery. And so I think part of being a Christian is living in that tension and that paradox of here's the revealed word of God. And here's the absolute mystery that it leads me to. (laughs) And I'm going to have to trust God in this and I'm probably going to fail sometimes. And I'm probably not going to get it right, but I'm going to go in the direction of mystery and revelation working together in my life. Mm. And I'm going to keep walking And, you know, not making this life the point. If I don't have sexuality, sexual partner, you know, for 40 years of my life, so what? (laughs) Like, I have a million, billion years with everybody in some kind of ecstatic, whatever bliss state it's going to be. I mean, we don't know. It's a mystery, right? (laughs) So, (laughs) And I can experience that through the Holy Spirit and Christian community now and actually find that way more fascinating having had a lot of sex in my life previously. So yeah, I think it just leads us to where we are completely in the hands of Jesus, our Lord. Mm. And we just have to go, God, I don't know.
0: So on a practical level, you've talked a couple of times about like, you know, you have friends that are progressive or you've had progressive people tell you X, Y, Z. How in your own life do you sort of balance this idea of you feeling that it's very clear, you know, that the Mm. Bible is very clear, with this idea that, so we talked to Karen Keene, and it's funny because like her story is almost like just the mirror of of yours. She grew up in a very Christian home, not an atheist home, you know, she grew up in a very Christian home, went through ex-gay ministry in the States, which is a real, like kind of like having the rock thrown at your back for years um yes. <laughs> and then was part of the celibate movement and then th- exactly well not exactly like you shouldn't go to Oxford but i mean like in the same way through study and getting her masters in new test i think it was new testament i don't know yeah. i'll say it wrong getting yeah. her masters she discovered the exact opposite of you know mm. she would she would say um that she discovered that she should be partnered and that god was calling her to seek a partner and um and so I guess for you in your life, like, how do you hold, how do we, mm. simult- how do you, I won't say we, cause I don't want you to feel like you have to prescribe something, but like, how do you hold both the feeling of knowing and the feeling of all I know is that I know nothing?
2: Yeah. I think it's really difficult. I think it's part of why God has such amazing grace for us. Cause he understands that like, we're only creatures, you know? And we're relating to a divine being that's beyond us, who's holy. And I think for me, it comes down to King David. It comes down to Jesus, obviously. But I look at the life of King David and he did everything wrong (laughs) all the time. And yet he was always so right about his life. Like he did what was ultimately right all the time, which was to worship God and love him above everything. And even when he got it wrong. (laughs) And I think that's the kind of person, that's the kind of heart God's looking for. And you can't prescribe an ethic and smack bang it over people's foreheads and say, well, you've got the conservative ethic, you've got the progressive ethic. God's looking for that heart, you know, that in the mystery is just relentlessly wanting to put him first, even if it doesn't. Uh, and that's all I've really got. It just comes back down to worship. I want to give my whole life to him. And that the God that I discovered in that pub was worthy of everything, all I am. And I think when I go to that place, I feel like celibacy is just one part of worshiping him. And I may Karen King may say, well, David, my gay partnership is part of me worshiping God. And I'm sure there's elements of that friendship bond that Karen would share with her partner that God would appreciate or find worshipable to him. Like, I'm sure it's not black and white. But I couldn't live knowing that there's a part of my relationship that even if I think I've worked it out in my master's degree, and even if maybe not, maybe God actually isn't okay with that. I couldn't live with that. Hmm. I just couldn't live with that not the God that I've met not the one who's worthy of all I am like every part of me even though I don't give it to him every day like I I can't like be asked to do that I would yeah there's something I've been so changed on the inside it's like no um I don't care how persecuted I am or like and that's part of the book when you get to this place where I'm with Jerome the French guy and You know, I've just committed to celibacy and off I am with this dude. You'll probably read this Mm -hmm. um, after we've had some post-punk dancing in Richmond. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm excited. (laughs) There's this like point where I was there with him and we're about to sleep together. And I was like, I can't do this. Mm. Like there's something new about me inside. Like it's like as if my nature couldn't Mm. do it. It was like I'd been changed. And I don't think a lot of people that read my book from conservative side were like, how could you sin after you got saved? Which I find crazy. But anyway, (laughs) um, like, have you read the Bible? (laughs) Um, Anyway, like, um, how could you fall into that situation straight after you committed your life to celibacy for the Lord? And I was like, exactly. God wanted me to get to the point where I made my bed in the depths of the earth. And he was still there. And I was still a new creation. And I actually couldn't go ahead with it. And that's really the only answer I have is like, I can't, even if I wanted to be with a gay partner, I couldn't do it. Like there's just something that has changed so deep within me. So I think it's, it goes down to that very personal level where I just, I couldn't live knowing that that could be wrong mm-hmm. before the Lord. Um, I would prefer to get before him and be like, Lord, that was really hard and you better give everyone a special reward <laughs> to ever <laughs> slipped through this and how good <laughs> grace you can have in the life. Cause that was freaking difficult <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm sure he will, but <laughs> you know, mm. I can't like, I just would. Pro- yeah. I've always had that kind of, I would prefer to give that to him mm-hmm. and yeah.
3: Mm. Well,
0: thanks David. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, I, don't, that's awesome. I don't think there's any more, I mean,
2: regardless
1: it. Like, yeah, I don't care where someone would stand listening to this right. to not be inspired by your faith and commitment to following Jesus. I don't even I don't even know how you can't be.
0: No, it was, <laughs> I mean, it was fantastic. <laughs> so. um well,
2: Thank you. I love this. This is this is such a joy for me to have you both, Um you know, and to know that your church is doing this so well and in investing, you know, and not just like all agreeing and tying it in a bow but actually like working through it so it's such a blessing to see that happening. Mm. So yeah, thank you for both of you. Oh, thank it's, you. Uh,
3: Appreciate
0: thank it. You. Yeah. Um we'll have to, I'll I'll have to have you on to another podcast to talk about music.
1: Yes, please.
3: Yeah.
0: He's got a separate podcast. <laughs> ironically, <I don't> <laughs> ironically enough, the hardest breakup I ever went through was with a man, and that's my recent breakup with Morrissey because he's awful. <laughs> uh, I
2: thought you were just going to come out to me. Like, oh. <laughs> some would say yeah, that my definitely need to do some, some
0: would say <laughs> that my decade long obsession with Stephen Patrick Morrissey would count. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: you know, I. I have a thing with Jake Gyllenhaal, but we won't go into that.
0: Too funny. Um, Well, thank you so much for being on, David. Um, We really appreciate it, and we know it's it's late where you are now.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's your night owl. I'm a night owl academic. Yeah. Academic.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, Cool. Well, thank you so much for having us on David or uh, for coming on and, and talking with us. Um, And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Uh, If you have a question, a comment, a concern uh, or a suggestion for a future topic, you can email it to stay curious at hillcityrva.com. Make sure to rate and review us when you get a second and we will talk to you all next time.